0: And another event has started that I love, and it happens usually every four years, but we had to wait five years this time, and that is the Olympics. How many of you are Olympic fans out there, all right? Half of us, that's good, all right? Um, And I love the Olympics because I love sports like weightlifting that I don't normally watch, right? Like the expressions that are there, the stories, Um, I, I got caught up in some skateboarding story yesterday. I watched badminton, doubles badminton. I watched a 12-year-old play table tennis in the Olympics. The youngest competitor is around Maddie's age. It was just crazy. You get caught up in all of these events. And some events that you never watch any other time but this. I don't ever watch field hockey um, except for the Olympic Games sometimes or watched archery yesterday, just had it kind of streaming in the background and things came up. And I thought about weightlifting a little bit because I had read earlier in this week an interesting statistic. And so the British Journal of Sports Medicine found that there was a way to increase the performance of weightlifters that was outside of the weightlifter and not anything that would be cause a problem with the International Olympic Committee. They found that they could raise the performance at the peak of weightlifting, 5% when one thing was done. And that is when the coach was giving encouragement to the athlete while they were performing. They increased 5% with that. Now, here's what I really liked. This is an interesting thing. They found that if the coach yelled encouragement at them, encouragement, not bad stuff, but if they got real loud, it increased at 8%. So I'm going to yell for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> but encouragement is something that makes us all do better, right? Uh, the University of Pennsylvania did a study and found that workers, managers who provided workers with encouragement during their jobs, saw a 31% increase in productivity. George Adams says that encouragement is the oxygen for the soul. Martin Luther encapsulated what the word encouragement actually means. He says to speak encouragement is to speak courage into someone's life. That's what encouragement means, or to encourage, is to literally put courage in. And We've all been in that place when someone has encouraged us, and while it may feel uncomfortable at moments to receive encouragement... That encouragement is the thing that drives us forward. God knows that encouragement important. In fact, in Romans chapter 12 verse 8 it tells us that some people have a gift of encouragement. Something that is above and beyond a normal thing. A supernatural gifting of God to be an encouragement to other people. And I hope you have those people in your life. I hope there are people in your life that are encouragers to you, that help you to see your potential and what God has placed in you and how God wants to use you. I also have read the importance of encouragement during times of difficulty. One author says that a word of encouragement after failure is worth a hundred words of encouragement after success. That when you have experienced difficulty, you have experienced failure, you have experienced trials... That encouragement is more important then than at any moment. So what does that have to do with Revelation chapter 3? Well, the church we're going to study today is the Church of Philadelphia. By the way, it's one of the two churches that has nothing kind of bad said about it. In fact, the Church Smyrna, that was the first church that we talked about, the second church written to, actually has a little bit of something about fear in there. The Church of Philadelphia has absolutely nothing bad written about it. If you've been with us over these weeks, you know the kind of the way that it has. The form of these letters has been a description of who Jesus is, and that's here. And then a, I know your deeds, and it's an encouragement time. And then, but I have this against you, which is the negative, and then a reward. Last week we encountered a church that had no positive and only negative. This week we incur, we found a church that is only positive, no negative. And here's why that's important. Philadelphia, most of us when we hear Philadelphia, we think of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? Philadelphia Eagles, Philadelphia Phillies, we think of the city of brotherly love. That's because that's the word Philadelphia actually means. But Philadelphia here was a not large city. In fact, it was a small city, and the reason that it was small is because they experienced lots of earthquakes and people didn't like to live there. And so they would move out all the time. They had dwindling population. The statistics around this time that people have unearthed or find out, historians find, is that they were losing people and that persecution was severe in this moment. And so in this moment, Jesus is writing to a church that is more than likely experiencing white-hot persecution, is seeing the number of people in their community diminish, and perhaps most of the commentaries I read, most of the studies I read, believe that the church of Philadelphia itself was experiencing the loss of members either through death and persecution or people walking away. And so it was a dwindling city with a dwindling church, and they were going through a particularly difficult time. And Jesus comes in, and his letter to them, it is a letter of encouragement. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, says this, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, we talked about this almost every week, Um, most people think, including me, that the angel there is the pastor or the overseer, the one that is given charge for the church in Philadelphia, so write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one will open. So up until this point, every time we have a description of Jesus, it pulls from chapter one where it talked about a description of the glorious Lord, of the of the word of God coming out of his mouth, of his bronzed feet, of this glorious appearance of Jesus. This letter actually pulls something from outside of that and gives us a different description of who Jesus is. Now the purpose is still the same. It is to give an elevated understanding of the glory and the majesty and the magnitude Of the God that we serve. And that Jesus as God incarnate who came to earth to die for our sins and was raised from the dead carries these characteristics with him. And so when he says in the beginning of this, this is who I am, it's a reminder of who's in charge and of who is the one that is controlling all things, that in spite of the persecution that they're feeling, in spite of the dwindling numbers that they may have, that Jesus is still in charge. And the first thing that he does is he describes himself as the Holy One. The one, thus says, the Holy One, the true one. Now, before we even get to the word holy, before we even get to the word true, to describe how it relates to Jesus in this way, there's that little three-letter word that is very important in that sentence. Now I want you to put on, I'm trying to help some of you that are getting ready to go back to school a little bit, let's put your grammar hats on for a minute, and all God's people said, uh right." All right? So put that on. What is, what part of speech is the word the? It's an article, I heard that, Okay. Somewhere out there, right? It's an article, but it's a particular kind of article. What's it called? It's called the definite article, said someone who did not want to be heard very loudly, but had the correct answer, right? It's the definite article. What does that mean? That means that it is saying it is the one. It doesn't say here, and this is from the Greek, it doesn't say that Jesus is a holy one or Jesus is a true one. It says he is the Holy One. It would be similar to right now if I said, and right now I'd like for you to welcome the President of the United States or the ruler of a country. It's the one that's in charge. The Queen of England is her. This is, he is the only Holy one. And that word is important. And we use it in church a lot. And sometimes we talk about what it means and sometimes we just use it and assume people understand what it means. But the word holy in its essence means different, other than, set apart. It means that Jesus is different, set apart, other than us. Other than anyone or anything that has ever been created because He is uncreated and He is holy. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, we must cut a new channel in our minds to allow us to have a glimpse of what it means. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to a higher degree. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness of God. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom but His holiness cannot even be imagined. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is because He is holy. Everything about Him is holy. Different set apart. And so, for instance, when we think about the holiness of God as it relates to the love of God or the purity of God, it is not like we can just say, well, he is, like Tozer says, just 20 times better than the best person I know or a thousand times better or a million times or even infinitesimally times better. We can't even imagine the concept of what the holiness of God is. And so when he's writing to this church that is under persecution and dwindling in numbers, he is telling them, First of all, I, who am, completely set apart, completely different, am writing this to you. And not only is he the Holy One, he is the true one. Everything he says is true. How do you know Jesus is speaking the truth? Because he speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks the truth. We live in a world where it's hard to sometimes wade through the competing ideologies and narratives that are found in what is supposed to be factual news. The more and more it feels like the news has become opinion than news. And as we wade through trying to decide from all sides that are coming together what is the truth in the midst of that, the one thing that we never have to doubt is that the truth comes from the Holy One. And I'm not saying that, that I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of go against any side in one way in human reasoning. I'm saying that all human reasoning and all human reporting at some point is flawed. And yet we serve the God that is the true one. And what he has spoken is true. We'll talk about this again in just a moment because one of the things he commends them for is being people of the word. That is why it's so important for us to ground everything that we believe and know in the scripture, in the word of God. Because it is the word of God, which means it is true and accurate and reliable and right. And so Jesus comes to this struggling church that is in persecution and seeing dwindling numbers. And he says, don't forget that the one who is holy and true is on your side. Now here's the other part of it. He says the one that holds the key of David. Just to be honest, that sounds like some best-selling like novel that's out there, David's Key. And when I first read that, I had no clue what that meant. That's not a biblical kind of concept that I hear lots of. It's not something that I knew immediately what happened. So I had to look it up this week, had to research that this week, had to think through it this week. And what I discovered is that apparently in the court of kings, of King David and others, there would have been a guy that was the steward in the king's court. What we would think of today in a corporation is kind of like a chief operating officer. He took care of all the details. He took care of all the things that were there. And he literally, as part of his job, wore a key around his neck and what that key represented was this access because he held literally the key to the door that would lock the throne room of the king and if you needed access to the king you had to go through the steward of the key of david And so when it says in this passage that Jesus holds the key of David, what it means is he is the one that has access to the Father, and the only way you get to the Father is through him. He is the gatekeeper. You ever been on a phone call trying to get something accomplished, and you realize that the person you are talking to on the phone is not the person you need to be talking to on the phone? And you have to ask them, can I talk to your supervisor? Is there somebody there that can help me? Now, I've met some of you, and I know that some of you say that in a very nice tone. Can I please speak to your supervisor? Could I, is there anyone else that can help me? And some of you, depending on how long you're on hold and how long it's been since you've been trying to get this problem solved from this person, you are speaking in a different tone when you ask for that. And there are levels that you want to go to, and what you want to talk to is somebody that's at the level that can do something about your issue, right? And you have to go through people that you know. If I needed to talk to the city manager of the uh, city of Goodlettsville, I know him, so that's not a problem. I can go talk to him. He's a deacon in our church. If I want to talk to the governor of the state of Tennessee, I don't know him, and he doesn't know me. I know people that know him, and I could go to people that know him and be able to have a conversation. But the higher up you go in government, for instance, the less people that have access to that person. Jesus says, when it comes to God the Father, by the way, you can't go higher than that. When it comes to God the Father, I am the one who has access to him. I hold the key of David. Now how do we know that's what he talks about? Because he tells us there even in that verse. He tells us, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one will close it, and who closes and no one opens. He says, I am the gateway. John fourteen six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. He is the access to God. And so what he's telling this church that is having difficulty, that is seeing the persecution around them, that is realizing that they're in danger, literally physically in danger, who have seen people from their church who have probably been killed, seen people shipped away, seen people leave, seen dwindling numbers that are happening, he says to them in this moment, Don't forget that the God that you serve is more powerful, is bigger than anyone else. And I can open doors that no one can close, and I can close doors that no one can open. I am the holy one, the true one, who holds the keys of David with access to God the Father. And then he tells them, starting in verse 8, about what he knows about them. He says in verse 8, I know your works. Look, I place before you an open door that no one can close because you have little power. But you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know your works. At this point, that's the seventh time in six letters he says, I know, I'm aware, by experience I understand. I understand that This door I have placed before you, no one can close because you have little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that you have been faithful. I know that you aren't giving up. I know that you are someone that is continuing to do the things that God wants you to do, that I have called you to do. And in the midst of this terrible persecution and in the midst of all that is going on, I see your endurance. I know Your works, and I am proud of what you are doing. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in the church of Philadelphia. You got there because you heard you had a letter from John that he had written specifically to tell you what the Lord would speak to you. And as you hear these other churches read and then you get to your name and you look around and you realize that Bill's not here today and you don't know whether that's because he's been arrested or he has abandoned Philadelphia. And you remember where John sat over here and you remember where Ted used to be. And you've had to sneak in because you can't let anybody know that you're there for fear that they'll come and destroy the entire church. And you get into that meeting and they begin to read the letter to you from the Lord Jesus Himself spoken, written down by John. And the Lord says, I see how faithful you are. I know your works. And He says to Him, I have placed before you an open door. There's lots of discussion about open doors in Scripture. Sometimes Christians use it to talk about doors opening or doors closing or all those kind of things. And sometimes we put them in cute little phrases. But in this particular place and throughout Scripture, when it talks about an open door, almost always it's talking about an open door of salvation. The open door in Scripture is almost always a depiction of God opening it for salvation for His people. And it's almost always set above. It's almost always set in the clouds or in the air or lift your eyes. And the idea is that when we get boggled down in the midst of the persecution and the difficulty and the hardships of life, it is easy to look at our feet and think about all that is entangling us around, and yet we are to look up. I think about Hebrews chapter 12, and it says that we are to throw off the weight We are to throw off the sin that so easily entangles and the weight that encumbers us. And we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. The way that it would be said here in Revelation is, I know that you have dwindling numbers and persecution and it's difficult. And you don't know if you're going to be arrested or killed tomorrow. But fix your eyes on the reality that I have opened the door of salvation to you by my death and my resurrection and that no one else can shut that door. And I am waiting for you. The thing that we can take as an encouragement from this passage of Scripture and from Scripture is no matter how difficult it is, no matter how problematic our lives may be, no matter how much of a struggle it is, we know that our assurance is in Jesus. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. He has purchased our salvation and he is waiting on us. And no matter how difficult life gets, we know that the struggles of this world do not compare to the glory that we're going to experience in eternity with him. A couple of years ago now, my parents, I say a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, with the COVID thing, Tom just got away, right? A couple of years ago now, my parents gave me this for my birthday. And you're like, cool, it's a cross. And it is cool, it's a cross, uh, obviously. And I have it in my office, but it's more than that to me because it's a reminder of the assurance of salvation I have in Jesus. Uh, a few years ago, my home church, First Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, some people join us and watch weekly from there after their service. First Baptist Church of Dyersburg, Tennessee remodeled their sanctuary, and as part of their remodel, they took out their pews. And then they had a guy, an artist, who took some of the pews and made crosses out of cross sections of the pews. And so this cross is a cross section of a pew from the church where I said to the Lord, I'm ready. It's a reminder to me that when I was a nine-year-old kid, in spite of what I didn't know, and can I tell you, there's a lot I didn't know. The truth is, there's a lot I don't know now not like I've arrived but at nine years old no idea what the world held but in that moment I accepted the free gift that was offered to me through Jesus Christ of salvation and since that day I have been assured that no matter what happens to me in this life there is an open door leading to eternity that is waiting for me Now, just to let you know, salvation, when it talks about that with the open door, it means the fullness of salvation. So it means that moment at nine years old when I said to the Lord Jesus that I am ready and I want to be forgiven of my sins. And I believe in you that you say you can save me from my sins because you died on the cross after a perfect life and you rose again from the grave. I believe in you, Lord Jesus, that at that moment I was justified before the Lord, just as if I had never sinned. God put his salvation in my life. God did the work. I just accepted in faith what had already been done and I was made clean before him. I'm in that process of sanctification where daily God is molding me and shaping me into the person that he called me to be, into the person that he is making me. He who began a good work in me will carry it on into the day of completion. And that is happening day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, when I fail, and I fail often, when I sin, and I sin often, God molds it and shapes it and works the tapestry of my life. And then ultimately there will come a point, either when Jesus comes again or when I pass away, that I will be released from this earthly body and my justification and my sanctification will lead to my glorification where I will spend eternity in heaven with God and it will be greater than anything I can ask or imagine. No eye has seen and no ear has heard what the Lord has prepared for His people. And when I get in the mire and the muck of what's happening in my life here, I must only remember the open door of salvation that is available for me. God does it from beginning to end. And he is taking care of it. Look at verse nine. And know this. Not only is God personally know our endurance and as the assurance that we need. Jesus knows our struggle. Verse nine. Note this I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not. But are lying I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. He knows their struggle compounded on the persecution that was coming from the Roman authorities at this time, compounded on living in a city that had earthquakes all the time, compounded on the people that are leaving, that are being arrested or murdered through that. What we fear or feel like and understand from this passage is that these Christians, who oftentimes were allowed to use the Jewish synagogue or associate with them as kind of a portion of Judaism, had been fully kicked out, Of the Jewish temple at this, or Jewish synagogue at this moment. They weren't allowed to use it in a place. And not only have they been kicked out, but what we can gather and understand from that time frame in history, from understanding biblical history, is that they were beginning to get turned in by Jews to the Greek authorities and to others for their participation in what the Jews saw as a false cult. And he says, I know what you're going through. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down. Reminiscent of Philippians chapter 2 when he says, And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He says, ultimately those that are giving you difficulty will bow at my feet. Here's what I want you to know. Is that just as Jesus knew the struggle that the church in Philadelphia was going through at this time, Jesus knows the struggle that you are going through at this time. And that is personally the struggle you are going through. The struggle that you and your family have in your life that maybe nobody else knows about. The struggle that you are enduring at this moment, physically, emotionally, in your career, in your family, in your schooling, whatever it is. God understands in the depths of your mind where nobody else goes. God knows your struggle. Personally, he knows you Scripture says he knows the number of hairs on your head, which means he knows every detail about you. He knows your emotional state, your mental state, your physical state. He knows it all. God doesn't need the doctors to run a test on you to find out your cholesterol level. You're like, why does it matter that God knows my cholesterol level? It may not. My point is he knows every detail about you. And when you are struggling in life, Let it be an encouragement to you that he sees your struggle and he walks with you. He says to them, I know specifically what you are struggling with the most right now. And I want you to know I'm going to work that out for your good and all things will be made right. Verse 10 says, because you have kept my command to endure... I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. He tells them because they have kept his word and not denied his name in the midst of this, that he is going to reward them and that their endurance will be rewarded. As you can imagine, there's lots of discussion about verse 10 because of really one little phrase in the midst of that, which is hour of testing. And he says he will keep them from the hour of testing. What does that mean? And the rest of the book of Revelation, which we are not going to follow after we get through with this series, although some of you would love for me to do that, Um, and maybe someday we'll come back and pick up portions of that. But the rest of the book of Revelation lays out the plan of God From then until the end of eternity, how he is going to justify everything, he's going to set everything right. And there's lots of discussion about how that's going to happen and where it's going to go and all of that kind of stuff. And you know there are all kinds of theories out there. There's um, uh, premillennial, there's dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. There are all those out there. And I won't take time to explain them all, and you don't have to understand them all, but there are people that feel like that there will be a great tribulation on the earth, a great testing of the entire earth. There are those that feel like God's people will be lifted out of that in what they call the rapture. Before that happens, there are those that feel like that they will be lifted out. After that happens, there are some that are like maybe mid, they'll be pulled out of that. Mid-trib rapture may happen. There are all these things that can happen. There are those that say that that's not going to happen, that it's just going to kind of flow, and then God's going to come again and all of that. Here's what I'll tell you. I have studied that. I have looked at that. I have discussed that. I've had conversations about that. I've taken classes on that. And as one pastor says, I've decided to go from the planning committee to the welcoming committee. I don't know how it's going to happen, but he's coming again. And when he does, he will reward those who endure and those that have seen and accepted that open door of salvation. And he gives us three specific ways in there. He says, first of all, I'll give you protection. The word keep there, by the way, just so you know, there are some people that use that verse to prove a rapture. I'm not saying that we're not getting into today rapture. Yes, no. Again, off the planning, onto the welcoming. But here's what I'll tell you. The word keep there actually means to hold up through the trial. It means to protect in the midst of it. And so God promises to this group of people that are under persecution, that are in the midst of this, who would say that an hour of testing is already upon them, that he is going to hold them up and keep them together and protect them in the midst of that. He also talks about recognizing them. I love this. He says, I'm coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown, in verse 11. There's this literal picture that we have in Scripture that when we get to heaven, that there will be some sort of ceremony, some sort of recognition, some sort of, like, it may take a long time with billions of people, but we've got eternity, right? And we'll be there, and there'll be some sort of gift some sort of, the best that I can even think of and it's not just because the Olympics are here now of that moment which they're not even doing that this year because of COVID but where they take the medal and they place it on the person and they're standing on the platform and they receive their medal and that moment and the national anthem plays first of all there'll be no national anthems in heaven I don't know if you are aware of that or not, but we'll get to heaven and the praises of God will be sung, but there will be some recognition of the work that has happened on earth. Can you imagine the moment when your Savior recognizes the endurance that you have had on this earth? He said, there'll be some sort of protection, there'll be some sort of recognition, and there'll be some sort of identity change. He says, and I will make a pillar in the temple, I will will make them a part of what's happening, and I will write on him, Say that his life has been claimed now by my God. He is a son, he is a daughter, or she is a daughter of the Lord. I'll put the name of the city of my God, which means the dwelling place of my people is in my city. And I will put my new name on them, the one that is known to them because of the salvation that I have brought. And so when you think about this whole letter written to a people, that are struggling, to a church that is struggling. Perhaps most people think maybe not the smallest town, but maybe the smallest church that had anybody write anything to it here in Revelation. It's a church that is struggling. It's a church that is losing people. It's a church that is persecuted. It's a church that has had a terrible run of several months or years. And Jesus looks at them and says to them, you can be assured that this will pass. Because of your assurance in me. I know what you're struggling with. I'm walking with you through it. And your endurance will be rewarded. I don't know about you. But when I think about walking with my Savior. And I think about those times in my life that are particularly difficult. Knowing that I have the assurance of Jesus' salvation. That he knows what I'm going through. And is walking through it with me. And that he sees my endurance, and there will be reward for that through his protection and his presence. And that is an encouragement to me. It gives me the courage to stand firm in the midst of difficulty, to keep pushing forward even when things around me are falling apart, because I fix my eyes on him. And my prayer is that whatever's happening in your life, whatever difficulty is there, whatever good things are there, that in the midst of what's happening, you will continue to focus your attention on Him and what He has promised us. Let's pray to God, Holy Father, I'm thankful for an opportunity to just be reminded of Your goodness and Your grace and Your protection, Your love for us, Your sympathy with us, that we have a Savior who is not unfamiliar with our suffering. And Lord, that you will guide us as we walk with you. I pray, Lord, that for the people in this room today that just need encouragement, they're struggling, struggling in their personal life, they're struggling with something happening at work, they're struggling with their family struggling with a sin that's familiar that they can't seem to get rid of, struggling with something at church, struggling with following what you've called them to do, Lord, that you would remind them of your goodness and your mercy, that you are with them in the midst of this and know their struggle, and Lord, that you'll reward them for their endurance if they simply follow you. That you'll give them a vision of the salvation that you've brought into their life so that they know what you have for them. Above all else, Lord, we just pray for your name to be the name that is lifted high, for your kingdom to be advanced, for people's lives to be changed and encouraged in this place because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.